This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. We would like to segue to our next speaker. Um, I think this is uh, Brian Scott Coe and Albert Pless. Uh, and um, uh, so I have an introduction for Brian. Um, so he is a board-certified medical geneticist, has dedicated his professional energies towards children with cognitive and developmental disabilities. Uh, and he's a writer. In 2001, he co-authored the national award-winning book, Common Threads, Celebrating Life with Down Syndrome, and most recently, Fasten Your Seatbelt, a Crash Course on Down Syndrome for Brothers and Sisters. Uh, Dr. Scott Coe is the Emma Campbell Endowed Chair on Down Syndrome at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also the Director of the Down Syndrome Program and Associate Professor, Harvard Medical School. Uh, Dr. Scott Coe has a sister with Down Syndrome. And uh, Dr. S uh, Scott Coe will discuss improving healthcare access for Black and Spanish-speaking people with Down Syndrome. Thank you so much, John. Such a pleasure to be here. And I will be co-presenting with my colleague, Albert Pless, who's joining me. And Albert, I'll let everyone um, learn a word or two if you want to give an introduction about yourself. Uh, thanks, Brian. Um, I served on this on this grant um, as the diversity outreach specialist. Um, in my day had, I work in diversity, equity, inclusion um, for a local town in Massachusetts. And I've committed pretty much 20 years of my health, of my public career in uh, public health. So. Thank you for that, Brian. So grateful to have Albert on our team for this project. We're excited to present um, all this to you. These are my disclosures that are also posted in the course materials. So prior, when Albert and I started this work more than two years ago, we realized when it came to Down syndrome or people with Down syndrome, there was very little research on what were the clinical needs of people with Down syndrome who came from underrepresented minorities. The overwhelming majority of people with Down syndrome do not have access to specialty clinics. And we also believe going into that, that disparity might be exacerbated by those who come uh, who have underrepresented minority backgrounds. And previous studies have also suggested that within our community, it's been difficult to recruit primarily Spanish-speaking and or Black African-American caregivers despite outreach. And the interest was to understand why. What were those social, structural, and personal barriers? And what were the facilitators that we might be able to overcome that? That allowed us to generate these goals. And Albert, I'll toss to you to review our goals. Yeah, again, and we were excited about this project. And so, you know, one of our goals um, was to better understand what these barriers and facilitators were for Black, Black African-American, Spanish-speaking populations, you know, trying to access their um, health care for their loved ones. Um, and, you know, I think a big one for us, we wanted to create some tangible solutions to confront these barriers because we realized, again, a lot of organizations and individuals were you know, looking for things that they can actually have to work with. And so these these tangible solutions were, were things we really look forward to, uh, to building through this project. It takes a team, as many of you know. This is our internal team at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, which consisted of laboratory scientists, survey methodologists, research assistants, and clinicians. But we also wanted to make sure we did this with critical inputs from primary care physicians from around the country who are taking care of individuals with Down syndrome, also caregivers who have loved ones with Down syndrome, who also identify as being either primarily Spanish speaking at home and or identifying as being Black or African American, 
And then we also wanted to work with our stakeholders, our community partners, specifically our community partners at the LUMIND IDSC Down Syndrome Foundation, one of the national Down Syndrome nonprofit organizations, and also our local Massachusetts Down Syndrome Congress to understand at an organizational level how we could ultimately implement some of the recommendations that came from this. In our presentation today, we want to share with you our journey. And our journey together involved three elements. One, gather information. While we had some ideas and hypotheses going in, we wanted to make sure we heard from stakeholders and got authentic data so that the data would help us drive our recommendations. Next, we want to share with you and report that data. What did we learn? And then finally, we want to say it's not just enough to report, but how do we share? How do we change? How do we implement change? And we had a recommendation that came out of the group that we're starting to implement, which we will share with you at the end. So we're going to start with the gathering of information. What sort of data did we gather and how did we do it? And I know, Albert, you were really busy over these past two years. Yeah, Brian, I think the key word you said was journey, because I think we really, and we've been on this together, and I think we did this in a few different ways, gathering this data. One is we're very intentional about connecting with primary care physicians, and we did these phone interviews with them, which I conducted a majority of those. We're really excited to hear, you know, what physicians thought. Um, also, we really did caregiver focus groups. And I think we really, you know, were intentional about making sure that we heard from caregivers and what they what they experienced in, in those. And then we also completed online surveys, which, which was the bulk of our, our, our data received with 109 caregivers um, and parents from them. You know, and I think, again, we were very intentional because we wanted to capture this data in different ways and, you know, qualitative and quantitative. And so we were excited about the way we went about collecting this data. And Albert, I know when you got the data, um, it then wasn't enough. You did a deep dive in coding, which took a lot of time. Yeah, just very rigorous. And again, we just didn't want to collect it. We wanted to make sure we analyzed it, you know, correctly. And so we, you know, um, you know, we used a, 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 a qualitative analysis through the deuce. Um, and, you know, we coded, transcript every single um, focus group, every single interview we did. Um, auto-prescribed, you know, we did everything through Zoom as as most um, things were conducted during that time period. But again, we really were intentional about really making sure this was a, a rigorous process in terms of looking at this data. We also, as Albert mentioned, uh, also did an online survey. So it's really great to go deep dive in focus groups with a few amount of people to get a lot of depth. But at the same time, we wanted to give the opportunity to families around the country who wanted to contribute their voices to our initial gathering of this pilot phase. As everyone knows, the work never ends, and this is just the start of many future research endeavors into this topic within the Down syndrome community. But we did design an online survey with input from caregivers. What questions do we need to ask in order to best get the answers that will lead to both structural and system change. Our survey was reviewed by the ethics board at our hospital, and we were proud to be able to partner with many of the national Down syndrome organizations and local Down syndrome organizations. And the survey was available from July of 2021 until October of 2021. We were happy we got 109 responses during the pandemic from families who are very busy taking care of their families, but who felt strongly enough to respond. You could see this is where they scattered. And for a pilot study, we were quite pleased that they weren't all just from Massachusetts. We had nice representation from many, although not all states from around the country. This is just a nice slide that puts it together. How do we gather the results? As Albert mentioned, we had three sources of inputs. 
the caregiver working group, the expert advisory group, and the primary care working group, they were all the people who educated us at Mass General Hospital to be able to conduct the focus groups, the questionnaire, and the primary care provider interviews, which gave us that data. So it was a team element. And now, in the next part of our talk, we want to share with you the results of what we learned. And in the third part of the talk, we want to share with you of what we're trying to do in order to address some of those barriers. And in this section of the talk for our results, Albert and I have divided into what are the lessons that we learned from primary care physicians who are out there on the ground practicing? What are the lessons that we learned from caregivers who identify as being Black and caregivers who are primarily Spanish-speaking? You'll find that some of the recommendations overlap and some are distinctive, but we're going to present them to you in those orders. So first section, this is all of the research that comes from parents who identify as being Black. African-American, of African descent, of mixed race. Um, and these are our households who should be primarily English speaking. And Albert, I'll let you start. These are some of the rich quotes that you got um, from your focus groups. Yeah, Brian, and again, as you know, and I think telling the audience today, we could speak about this for hours and hours because there's so much rich data we have. So we're gonna try to buzz through some of these slides. But this first quote, you know, really from a primary care physician was really talking about the the access to the medical system. And it's such rich in terms of, well, from what parents tell us, one of the biggest barriers that they have is just getting in the door, you know? And that has a lot to do with wait times from our centralized scheduling system. And so again, just for the primary care physician was stressing the fact that just getting into door for some of the, um, the parents was, was very difficult. Lack of time, you know, again, this probably comes up a lot. You know, I just don't have enough time. You know, I got a full schedule. And again, our physicians on the, on the call could speak to this. I got 20 minute visits for anything like a flu to, um, to a cold, to a full visit um, physical for a complicated kid. So I don't get enough time to spend with these families. And this whole idea of a team approach, you know, this came up a lot in my interviews with physicians around the soldat really needing additional support. You know, this one physician said, if I just had a social worker on site, that'd be awesome. Because when we make sure that this patient needs transportation, um, they have um, patient needs, we just schedule an appointment with a GI. I have a family who is struggling with domestic violence, and I'm trying to make sure that they're plugged in to local resources. Again, addressing the social terms of health, which a lot of these families, a lot of these physicians were speaking to in terms of these parents, um, caregivers having a hard time getting care. And I think, Albert, we consistently hear from many physicians wanting to do the right thing, but again, lacking those resources and perhaps some of the follow-ups of some of those systems. So those were the results, um, in short, that we heard from many of our primary care physicians. Now we want to go to the caregivers themselves, and these are going to be the responses from the um, caregivers who have loved ones with Down syndrome who identify as Black, African-American, of African descent, or mixed race. I'm going to present the quantitative results that came from our national survey, and then Albert's going to share with you the real nuance and depth that we got from those interviews that were done in our focus groups. I'm going to walk you through how to read these slides because I'm going to present all of my quantitative data the same way. So we have the question at the top, and you could see the question here is, do you think that most of these groups receive higher quality of medical care, same quality of medical care, 
or lower quality of medical care in comparison to white patients with Down syndrome. So could those patients with Down syndrome who cannot speak English, how do they compare to their white patients with Down syndrome who can speak English? The entire bar you see represents 100% of the respondents. And broken down in that bar in the red are those who feel that people who in this category cannot speak English got lower quality of medical care in comparison to their white counterparts. Then you can see yellow represents same, green represents higher quality, dark blue represents I don't honestly know, and the light blue just are those participants who left a blank and didn't answer. So way of visually looking at this is red and yellow represents those who feel that it's a lower quality of care. So the majority of our respondents feel that patients with Down syndrome who cannot speak English get a lower or same quality of care as comparison to their white counterparts. Black or African-Americans, you could see greater than 50% of them feel that they're getting lower quality of care. Those who identify as being Hispanic or Latino, you could see it's 25 respondent, which comes to about 35% and less so for Asian or Asian Americans who feel that they either didn't know or received the same or higher quality of care. The bars are all going to be the same. And on the right, you can see how we label them. Um, in this case, yes is going to be red and no is going to be green. So in the past year, have you personally felt that doctors, nurses, or hospital staff treated your loved one with Down syndrome unfairly or with disrespect because of their racial or ethnic background? You could see of the 68 uh, caregivers who identify as being Black, only about a quarter of them did feel that they were treated unfairly, but it is still a quarter that needs to be addressed. For those that felt they were treated with disrespect because of their child's disability, it was about 25% again. And you could see that a few in the minority, although not zero, feel that they were treated with disrespect because of their inability to perhaps pay for the service or their own religion or religious beliefs. This question was, when your loved one with Down syndrome has been referred for a diagnostic test or appointment, have you ever worried about any of the following? And anything in red or yellow is to an extent, yes, I worry. So you can see about half of parents worry about the time that needs to be taken off of work, the love, uh, whether their loved one with Down syndrome would be treated with respect. About half were concerned about out-of-pocket costs, and about half was worried that whether or not they would be treated with respect. Again, you could see another half felt that, no, they didn't worry about that, but there is not um, a consensus and we have to be mindful of those who still identify this as a barrier within our system. In general, how important do you feel is for your loved one to be carried, cared for by clinicians who are race and ethnic concordant, concordant in cultural religious beliefs or concordant in gender? You can see the green is very important. So, for more than 60% of our participants, they would prefer to have clinicians who are racial or ethnically concordant. About 50% or so want concordance in cultural and religious beliefs, and about 35% or so uh, would prefer to have concordance in gender matching the gender of their loved one with Down syndrome. We heard a lot about trusted messengers in our previous presentations, and so it is true for parents who have loved ones with Down syndrome. Here is who are your trusted messengers, and more it is green, the more they are trusted messengers. So in these families, they identify doctors and hospitals as being among the top listed trusted messengers. And this is really empowering for those of us in healthcare to realize what a privilege it is 
to have that trust, but how important it is not to lose that trust. Going in, decreasing order, charitable organizations, the internet, and the least likely to be trusted messengers among our respondents were family or friends or religious organizations or leaders, particularly when it came to information about Down syndrome. Albert, I know you heard many of these themes in some of your focus groups. Happy Brian. And I think, uh, again, this is a, a, another powerful quote. I think they all are. You know, I think in terms of, you know, parents themselves um, looking to other parents, you know, for advice. And this was, uh, you know, I really do rely on uh, two support groups that I'm involved with. You know, not too many online because there are so many things out there online that you really don't know if you can't, you can't trust it or not. So to me, the support groups really were the key. Again, speaking to the part of just this um, idea of trust, um, cost, I think, was came up a lot within our focus groups. Um, I think this, again, powerful quote, the doctors are there, but how you access the healthcare is unequal because how much money you have and how much support. You know, other people might say Black families do, but to me, it's all about the money. And somebody with money can fly by without a lot of support because of the money they have. They can pay sitters to do this and to that. But if you don't, if you have no money, the lack of support becomes even more important. And that's from a Black African-American caregiver. Um, providing Down syndrome resources, information came up a lot around just resources. And our pediatricians helped just guide us along the way on providing resources. And so she's been a good resource in addition to the Down syndrome group here. Again, this whole idea of having resources coming from the primary care physician, but also their broader community. And the final one around kind of hesitant or mistrust of online resources came up in the earlier quote. You know, I tend to trust professionals more. So if I go to the internet for some information, it's something I'll, I'll take back either to my group or to a professional or honestly decipher with um, experience that they've had with my child to see if it seems right or if the area right and confirm with the paid professional. Again, this idea of not trusting online resources. Now, but I think we've really seen how clinicians and hospitals really rank highly when it comes to the topic of Down syndrome, but how do we build that trusted relationship and break down the barriers that try to strain that relationship? Our, our, exactly. our third topic is we want to now share with you the same type of data, but this is broken down by the caregivers where Spanish is the primary language spoken at home. And in this particular case, we had 41 families complete, again, available in Spanish, the Spanish-speaking equivalent of this. And you've seen these slides before. So in their viewpoint, do they feel that uh, the following groups receive higher, same, or lower quality of compare care in comparison to white patients with Down syndrome? And you could see not having accessibility by English, they felt about 30% or one-third of the time received a lower quality of care. Just being Hispanic or, or Latino or Latina, about 30% of the time they felt it was lower quality of care. And then this particular group uh, largely chose not to respond or saying they did not know because they didn't have that lived experience on how they would comment on other racial and ethnic groups like Black, African-American, or Asian or Asian-Americans. In the last year, do you ever feel that you were treated, your child with Down syndrome was treated unfairly or with disrespect due to their racial or ethnic background? You could see, unlike the respondents who were caregivers of Black uh, patients with Down syndrome, 
those who identify as primarily Spanish-speaking were less likely to say these were an issue. You can see the overall reported that these were not an issue, which is reassuring, although it's important to note the small sample size and also notice it is not universal and there is still room for improvement. What do you worry about if you come from a primarily Spanish-speaking household? Again, time off of work was more than 50%. Transportation, about one-third of the individuals. Uh, about more than 50% of the families to a certain ex extent felt their loved one with Down syndrome who came from a primary Spanish-speaking household. Would they be treated with respect? Would they, as the parents, be treated with respect? And close to 50% had some concern about out-of-pocket costs, as we've continued to hear. This is that question about how as important it is for the care for the carer or the clinician to be concordant with gender, race, ethnic background, or cultural religious beliefs. You could see here about one third of the time it was important, so still important to many, but we saw it was not as high as it was for those families who identified as being Black, but again, a low um, number of respondents. Who were your trusted messengers if you came from a primarily Spanish-speaking household? Again, we rank these from highest to lowest. The more green you see here, the more they are a trusted messenger. And there again at the top are clinicians, hospitals, and clinic web pages. Again, viewed as trusted sources of reliable information about the topic of Down syndrome. In decreasing order, ending with family or friends, and while many people might find this um, interesting, we learn from our focus groups that many come from cultural backgrounds where they say Down syndrome is just not understood or it's misunderstood. And I'm tired of having to apologize or explain for my family for having a child with Down syndrome. And so as many of them reported that there is a lot of education that they need to do within their own communities that they have to hold. And so this is why when it comes to whom I got to trust for medical care, um, uh, really kind of referring to the doctors in hospital and clinics tend to be at the highest of their list. And Albert, I know you heard a lot of these themes again in the focus groups. Yeah, well, again, this is the richness of these conversations. I just remember them vividly, actually, these conversations we were having, you know, again, and, and this whole idea of the initial diagnosis, uh, again, uh, this quote uh, speaks really volumes. Yes, it's in relation to the doctors, really, they're the ones who give the news. They give the diagnosis. Yes, they should be more steeped in the topic. Because bad handled news affects mothers a lot. Again, I remember these conversations with these caregivers around the fact that some of them were sharing vividly how they got really these, uh, got the news handled in a very, they just think not in a caring way. And, and I think it affected them and they had older kids and it really just affected them to this day. And so really that, that initial diagnosis is so important, how you handle that, converse, that, that conversation. Um, caregiver support groups, again, I spoke a little bit to the African-American uh, group as well to this in terms of similarities. You know, but, you know, I realized there were no groups in Spanish in my area, and it's a very large area of Latinos, so I started my own group um, in Spanish in the area. And, and thanks to that, you know, two foundations that are here, the Down Syndrome Guild and the other ones began to give classes in Spanish. This whole idea of, you know, language is so critical within the Spanish um, um caregiver groups in terms of the importance of having things done um, in, 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 lang in languages that they felt were appropriate for them. Yes. Albert, I would also say we've heard from some families that uh, the burden oftentimes falls on them to initiate change. So in this particular case, a mother who is primarily Spanish speaking needed to start that initiative, very successful, yeah. um, and she was willing to do that. But we know that 
um, it takes a community, as we've learned from ours, to kind of pick up this charge. And oftentimes, uh, the groups that need our help cannot initiate the change, and we need to rely on collateral supports and groups to initiate those changes. Definitely, Brian. Definitely. Thanks for speaking to that. Um, and, and this whole idea of, of distrust of, of service providers. When I first my my prescription, I felt bad because he began to tell me that children with Down syndrome handled a lot with fever, and that you had to be careful, that you had to always be with them. I mean, instead of encouraging me, he made me feel afraid, so that made me feel intimidated. I felt I felt bad, you know. So again, speaking to the idea of just merely being able to. Um, receive information from care, um, care providers who, um, from our physicians who really feel like they have thought through what their responses are going to be and, and making sure that they know that these caregivers, uh, you know, are going to receive this information and it's, it's going to be hard for them. Albert and I, with our team of stakeholders, now want to present to you, how do we put all of this together? How do we merge the qualitative and quantitative with what we call the take-home points? And what we wanted to do is in the lower right-hand corner, mention whether this is individual change, whether it's structural change, whether it's systemic change, because it definitely is multiple levels of change. And the each slide is going to be a particular topic, which you'll see incorporates different data that we've presented to you. So first and foremost, relationships built on trust are crucial for establishing long-lasting medical care. You've heard that throughout multiple different presentations today. Caregivers start by trusting the healthcare system. We're high on the list of trusted messengers. However, it is ours to use as a privilege and ours to break. And when that is broken, it's really hard to unbreak that. So caregivers are also asking that the providers also trust them in return and trust them and not feel like they're being dismissed because of the language or lack of knowledge. And once a trusted clinician is found, Parents talk and those referrals pass around and around and those clinicians. So again, parents saying, uh, you know, helping to build that trusted relationship and sharing that information with each other. But it really is an individual change on clinicians' part, on people who are practicing to recognize the position they're in and be able to use it for good and continue to strengthen those bonds within the community. And, you know, I think caregivers, you know, we're looking for medical providers who demonstrate a willingness to learn about Down syndrome. Again, we, we heard some of this in the quotes earlier. You know, caregivers mentioned that they prefer medical providers who treat their loved ones as an individual and not a condition. Um, and and this whole idea of, of, of the second piece around providers' responsiveness, availability, access will were crucial for relationship building, this whole idea of building relationship. And that starts with the providers really being able to see, you know, the um, the child in front of them again and not the condition and see the family in front of them as well. You know, how medical professionals delivered that initial diagnosis could have a long-term impact. And this is called the flashball memory from the neurological literature. So whenever we have events in our life that are so salient, we will remember details for a long time. Where were you when 9-11 happened? For those of you who remember JFK being shot, where were you when that happened? People can recall where they were, what they were wearing, what they did next, et cetera. That is a flashball memory, and you remember that. Research has now been done receiving a diagnosis of Down syndrome 
is more of a neurological flashbulb memory than those who experienced 9-11. It is an event that is seared in the minds of families. And if it goes well, then it sets them up for a lifetime of embrace. If it doesn't go well, they will remember those details for a long time. And what we heard from families who came from primarily Spanish-speaking households is they didn't always feel that that initial diagnosis was delivered with compassion. It needs to, to be delivered honestly, but there is actually uh, online courses and toolkits and research on how to deliver unexpected news in a way that is culturally sensitive, that's accurate, and also sensitive to the needs of the family. So an important step is for clinicians to acknowledge that there is grief and fear at the beginning. This was not the necessarily the child that I was anticipating, and that feeling is okay, but together we will work through that feeling. We will find an opportunity to celebrate the richness that comes from neurodiversity. Clinicians can be frank, but need to be hopeful at the same time. And inspiring confidence about the true potential of people with Down syndrome was something that was emphasized multiple times by many families. And this is a busy slide, so I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I think this whole idea of, of um, the medical community um, needing to recognize that raising a child with Down syndrome can be hard. And I think that the families uh, expressed a lot, um, and hence why we mentioned this was an individual piece around being able to have, you know, providers and others from an individual standpoint kind of take, take this onus around making sure that they are um, conveying to the families uh, and, and the child that this this is going to be a, a potentially difficult journey, but also as systems, we have to work on this broader system around being able to, you know, provide supports for physicians more, being able to just think systematically how, you know, how, how the system could, how the systems can be better um, um, informed to help families um, with not, not just that initial diagnosis, but just that raising of the, of the child and helping build communities. Um, and so, you know, we, we, again, a couple of these, I think being able to understand that, you know, people can say, hey, just find another provider, you know, because if that's not working, you can find one who gives you great news. But the other day, and just think about, you know, just in general, trying to find a provider is difficult. So the whole idea of switching providers is hard, you know, and that becomes something you, you know, you want to be able to have that relationship. Um, and, you know, being able to, you know, Primary care teams don't always have this expertise. And Down syndrome specialists are lacking this around the nation. We heard that tremendously from providers around the fact that they, you know, um, the teams, they just don't have a lot of these uh, specialty clinics across the country. So being able to, you know, um, and that's a systems problem, right? We need to make sure that we are funding more of these um, specialty clinics. And so um, families can have access to them. Because um, I know Massachusetts is fortunate to have one here. But again, I know. Now, California has one as well, but it's very few, you know, around the country. So, again, I just read a few of those for the purposes of, of time. We also heard from our families, more physicians of color are needed to take care of patients with Down syndrome. Many of the families were looking for providers who were both racial and ethnic concordant. That takes a system change. How do we make sure that there is a pipeline of clinicians who identify as being Black, African-American, or Spanish-speaking, who are interested in going into genetics, developmental behavioral medicine, into the areas of where our families want to make sure that they have. Um, 
but we also know it's a it's an individual change as well. We need to each one of us be able to uh, make those changes in the system in order to do that. We know, however, that a lack of such providers makes this unattainable in many parts of the United States. And so at the end of this talk, we're going to represent one of our potential solutions of trying to democratize healthcare and be able to extend it to people in many parts of the United States that just don't have the same resources or the number of clinicians um, who match their racial uh, preferences. You know, and I think that, you know, everything a lot comes down to funding, right? I mean, I think we, we talk about, you know, these, and, and I think we're not, you know, uh, proposing that these systems changes and even individual changes don't come with the price tag, you know? So I think we understand that this is, but more systematically, we realize that it, it needs funding, you know? And uh, again, this is something I know that uh, a lot of us on this call probably understand, but, you know, I think just understanding that, you know, um, you know, PCP, um, they, they just can't do this alone. You know, and I think we just need to, and I heard, again, loud and clear from physicians and clinics that they just, that they're just underfunded and they don't have the supports there that they need. So being able to make sure those supports are there. Um, you know, I think having, you know, access to such resources um, will help caregivers develop a sense of self-efficiency and understanding when you, when and how to get support and how to further engage in the medical community and research opportunities. I think being able to make sure that these supports even extend beyond the, the, the clinics and into, into the community as well. And so we can understand, I mean, this was a sample pilot project we did here, but there's so much need um, for more research to be done in the African-American and the Spanish-speaking community. Any of those other ones I want to speak to, Brian? I, I know there's a lot. We had a busy slide. There, no, but I, think we I mean, Albert, as you and I always talk about, Put money where the priorities are. And yeah. if it's going to be a priority, the money needs to follow. And that's at both the kind of local institutional and the big systemic. And it's nice to see progress being made, as you say, but a lot more progress is needed. Um, I, all of our families uh, mentioned that the system needs to change. Both cultural humility and competency need to be part of a continual education in the healthcare system. And many parents did point out that the medical community's conscious and unconscious biases based on race, ethnicity, and language do affect their loved one's care. Um, as we heard from the previous speakers, um, checking our biases and continuing to tap in and review those. Um, there's multiple opportunities for shared dialogue and enhanced learning that's now available. So there is no excuse to say, oh, we just don't know where to turn or we don't know how to be educated. Um, and uh, a big emphasis on continual. It's not one and done, but it's something that we continue to reflect on. And, you know, and some, you know, caregivers are tired of being reminded by the medical community about their race, you know, and I think this came up, you know, and the, you know, um, often such references are subtle, you know, but many caregivers want their loved one with Down syndrome to be treated for who they are as a person and not always evaluate through the lens of race and ethnicity. And I know this is uh, somewhat of a challenge for some of us because, you know, we see that Black child in front of us, we see that you know, Spanish-speaking child in front of us, and we want to look, and we see so many dis, um, disparities out there, and we understand that health equity is so central in terms of making sure that we're addressing that. But at the same time, I think these parents are saying to us loud and clear, see my loved one for who they are as a person and not look at them as a race and uh, a, a statistic. Um, and so I think we have to continue to, as a, as a, 
as a, to look at this from a systems lens, I think this is more in terms of making sure that we're not just focusing so much on race, ethnicity, and 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 um and losing sight of the fact that there's a as a child in front of you. Thanks, Albert. Now we want to share with you quickly on how, what we're doing with this data. We just don't want to sit on it. We want to be a catalyst for, for change. And we received additional funding to do diversity awareness building events. These have now been completed. Albert's going to tell you how he did it during a pandemic, but we had 10 events um, around the country where we engage families in our data to have those dialogues and also to come up with ways to mitigate some of those barriers that are in place. Albert, I'll let you give a brief overview of of what you've been doing. Just, just quickly, again, we did these amazing awareness building clips, all about really sharing back the data to the community because that's really where they, that's where it belongs. That's where the rich conversation. So we did something called an awareness building trip. We invited folks on to call. These were supposed to be in person, but we did them online and we really did a good job of really engaging community. We we, um, we gave out uh, uh, an incentive, which was cookies. We, we made cookies on the call with folks. Um, so we had the caregiver and their, their loved one on the call. We gave an overview of our work, engaged in some very rich conversations really with them in terms of how they saw um, this, how they, what their needs were really, and what they saw as being ways this project could be extended beyond this kind of pilot. And, and again, just having those rich conversations. Um, and then we shared uh, uh, um, uh, uh, an example of something, again, as Brian's gonna share a little later about our Down syndrome to you clinic as a resource for them. Uh, again, so rich conversations, sharing a lot of data, but hearing a lot of rich information from them as well. And I know Albert planted those seeds so that they continue those conversations within the Down syndrome support group. So the work never ends. Through exactly. our same funding agency, we were given funding in order to create what we hope is one part of the solutions. You know, there's a part when you see all of this data and all the systematic change that needs to happen, there's a sense of being, it's so powerful, but it's so overwhelming. Where, where do you even begin? Um, and with the inputs of caregivers, we decided to try a small bite um, in order to be able to democratize healthcare when it comes to people with Down syndrome. And we created something that's called Down Syndrome Clinic to You, and I want to share with you how we did it. It was, again, created by an internal team of laboratory engineers and who know how to create software also among a great uh, diverse cast and crew of clinicians who have taken care of people with Down syndrome at Massachusetts General Hospital. But we also wanted critical inputs from national advisors. And many of these advisors were also the same advisors on our other work that we had previously presented. But we're very grateful for the experts, the primary care doctors, and the caregivers who have loved ones with Down syndrome to help inform what we've created. It is created right now. So if you're listening and you want to pull out your phone or iPad and bring it up right now, dsc2u.org. Um, it's available completely in English and in Spanish. And I want to walk you through how this works. When a caregiver, no matter where they live in the world, as long as they can access information in English and in, or in Spanish, they can use any device. It's mobile optimized, can be used on your phone, your iPad, your computer, and you will get an intake form. It's important to know that nothing on this intake form is fill in the blank. 
It's all click this, click this, or click that. It also has branching logic. So when you enter the information, we will know, do we ask you the eight-year-old questions about Down syndrome or the 55-year-old questions about Down syndrome? The goal of this is we had all of our providers download their brains. So everything that is based on research, based on clinical guidelines, based on our expertise, we have programmed into these answers. So for example, if you have a nine-year-old with Down syndrome who's snoring at night and tired during the day and having academic challenges, we know that those data points likely add up to obstructive sleep apnea, and the recommendation is we need to get a sleep study. No need to make an expensive visit to Boston to see me for me to tell you that we could program into this form that's completed in your home. In short, we will come to you so you don't have to come to us addressing a couple of the barriers that we heard from our focus groups about transportation being an issue. Transportation is not an issue here as long as you have internet connection. Here you have a series of medical issues that we know in combination can lead to uh, co-occurring conditions that go along with Down syndrome. And I would just point out that on the left are different chapters that families could complete. The more they complete, the more they will get. We basically are trying to simulate the level of care that we're able to provide to those at our Down syndrome specialty clinics to those around the, around the country. When they press submit, no one reviews that information. It goes through our algorithms that we're constantly updating, and this is what a caregiver will get. In their portal, they will get a checklist for them broken down to what they could do right now. And then if they click on the second tab, they will get the same checklist, but written for their primary care doctor. So the next time they have that wellness visit, we're going to turn that primary care physician into a Down syndrome specialist. And in the upper right-hand corner, you could change everything to Spanish. This is an example of what you would see. So for example, patient Molly, she needs to get an eye exam, a celiac screen, a sleep study. We have these green Y buttons. And if a parent were to select one of those, we will say exactly what they wrote on the intake form that led to this information. We also spent two years curating all of the credible information that's available on the internet, bringing it to parents so they don't have to search for it. So now that we've made them worried about thyroid, if they click on the first link, it'll take them to a free webinar, 20 minutes about thyroid issues and Down syndrome. And the next link will take them to one of the nonprofit Down syndrome organizations who has a great fact sheet about thyroidism. We also, in the next section, have all those co-occurring conditions. How do we make sure we not have diagnostic overshadowing? We see through Down syndrome to be able to treat and identify things like depression, constipation, eczema, all with resources that are available here. And more than just being a medical online clinic, it is there for health and wellness, being able to address things. We offer um, recommendations to books, books that are available online or in their local libraries to address some of the issues that might be pertinent. We also wanna make sure people with Down syndrome can be as independent as possible. Here are some of the life skills checklists with free access to social stories that are available online. We connect them with resources. So our social worker, how do you get a special needs stress? What is SSI? How do you apply for it? And with a click of a button, everything can be translated into Spanish. I promised you on that second tab would be the same information, but now that can be printed out or emailed to your primary care doctor. So you can make sure you democratize healthcare with your established trusted provider. You don't need to see a new trusted provider. You could turn your trusted provider into an expert at bout Down syndrome, which is one of those take-home points that Albert had shared with us. All of us, caregivers, clinicians, healthcare policy advocates came together to write up all these results in this article, which was published. We also tested the efficacy of this around the country and show that it is 
efficacious and it does work. Parents and primary care doctors on a scale of zero to 10 rated about a 7.8, saying that it's very helpful to the care that they're receiving. It's available right now. You could go to downsyndromeclinictou.org. We are a nonprofit. We're operating from Massachusetts General Hospital. We have three low-cost um, ways that families can access it. Um, and again, rather than making any trips or any co-pays to specialists, they'll be able to access it through these plans. But we're working hard to even democratize the access to healthcare. So while we have um, real cost to keep this going at Massachusetts General Hospital, we are now working with insurances across the country to make it a win-win. And so we have two insurances that are already making this free to members who are in those insurances. And we're also working with local Down syndrome organizations because these organizations have said, we do all this fundraising, but what's better than the gift of health? And if you go to dscdu.org organizations, you'll find those Down syndrome organizations that have purchased free access to Down syndrome clinic Q for their members. This is just one small way that we're trying to address some of the disparities through a creative use of online resources. Albert and I cannot say thank you enough to P. Corey, who funded all of our work together. We're also grateful for the NIH through their DS Connect to help recruit people for our studies to give us our rich outcomes. We want to thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. We cannot do it alone. So Albert and I do welcome your feedback. Here's our contact information. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.